Father, thank you for the mercy that you grant in studying your word. Father, help us, Lord, to have ears to hear, a mind to comprehend and to understand, to see how you are moving all things in history, to demonstrate your faithfulness to your word, and to give you maximum glory. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're doing. Let me give you a brief summary of what we're looking at. And if you want, go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Romans 9, and just listen as you go, okay? What we're doing is, is we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. If you remember, the Jews had had maximum revelation. They had been given pretty much everything that you could possibly be given, especially the incarnate, manifested Son of God, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, right before their eyes, so that they could believe in Him as their Messiah, and by believing, they would usher in the kingdom of God right then and there in their time period. However, the leaders discredited Jesus and said, no, the miracles that He does is by the power of Satan. This is what's known as the unpardonable sin. In doing so, Jesus then begins to step back away from his kingdom offer to Israel, and the kingdom has been postponed until a later time to happen. And now he begins speaking about his death, burial, resurrection, and that there is going to be a new entity that comes in known as the church that is going to be the channel of his blessing to the world in order to demonstrate his power through also to serve as witnesses and have the chief end of making disciples of all people wherever they go. That's what we're dealing with right now. In doing that, Jesus pronounces a very interesting and creative type of judgment against the Jewish people. And this is what makes up the parables in Matthew 13. That those who have responded to him are given further revelation by the stories that Jesus is going to tell. But those who have denied him, that meaning is veiled to their understanding, and he is essentially judging them as not being privy to this special revelation. Now this is called a mystery. It is a thing about the kingdom that was not previously revealed and is revealed now. A mystery, remember, a mystery, don't think Scooby-Doo when you think mystery, okay? It's not a, we got to figure this out kind of thing. No, it's just something that was always been in God's plan but has not been revealed up until this point. So it's new for us to understand it and to come to understanding of it. I guess that's a redundancy, but regardless. So in doing so, one of the most interesting things we found out is there's going to be four different types of reception to the message of the kingdom. There are going to be one person who Satan comes in and snatches it away. Those people will think that this idea of the coming of the kingdom of Christ is completely foreign at a future time. I think we're by and large seeing that manifested in Christianity now by this idea that the kingdom is already here. It's just in a spiritual form that we cannot see. Now, with everything that's going on around us, I think we would agree that's a little iffy understanding. And and I understand that's an experiential interpretation of what's going on. But I still think that there's some merit to it of realizing if if this is the kingdom, I think Jesus could do a lot better than what he is. We also find that there's a message of the kingdom of the idea that when persecution comes about for holding fast to that idea, these people fall away pretty quickly. You have a third group of people who, whenever they get wrapped up in wealth whenever they get wrapped up in the cares of this world it actually chokes out the significance of that message and you find those who hold fast to this message regardless of what's going on around them actually have a reproduction that channels through them of 30 60 and 100 fold jesus then began to explain this and he explained it profoundly in this idea of wheat and tares and what we found was is that during the 1000 year reign of Christ Jesus. There is actually going to be evil that is growing alongside the wheat, the good, the sons of the kingdom, and at the end will come to its... Sometimes I get speaking in tongues, I'm sorry. (laughs) Will come to its full maturation. See, you can't just say that word, you got to think into it. Maturation, and in doing so will become evident of what it is. At that time will be the end of that 1,000 year age and angels will be sent out to gather up the tares, bind them together and cast them into a fire to be burned and tormented for the rest of eternity. However, 
those sons of the kingdom who were growing up at that side, and let's be honest, what makes someone a son of a kingdom at that time? Well, it's a, someone who believes in Jesus Christ, obviously. But what we're making the case for is the fact that this is a physical remnant that is being ushered into the kingdom in their bodily form. In two weeks, we're going to see about Satan being locked away, the return of Christ, everything that happens during that time. And we're going to draw it all together and make sense of this parable. So actually, everything that we're studying is pulling this out. What we're defending today is the idea of a physical-bodied remnant of primarily Jews who are ushered into the kingdom. This seems to be a major emphasis. So here's what we saw. Let's skim and scan together. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, if you remember, Paul has this deep grief and anguish. Why? Because the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ, and they need to. He is a Jew, and he is upset because his kinsmen according to the flesh, even though they have had multiplied exposure to God and his goodness and his word, and even the Messiah coming through their line, they are still in unbelief. And let's keep in mind what the problem is here. Or, or what the problem is not here. Everybody look at chapter 9, verse 6. Look what it says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The problem with Israel not coming to faith in Christ is not because the word preached to them is ineffectual. Does that make sense? The problem's not with God's word. That's what we need to understand. Now, if you move over to the end of Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, remember, there's a lot of the word righteousness being thrown around. And that righteousness is the same type of righteousness that is of God's righteousness. That's what he requires to stand in his presence. Well, that's exactly what Jesus Christ provides. He takes upon our sin and he gives to us, he credits to our account, his righteousness. Are we righteous in and of ourselves? No, we sin every day. That's why we need 1 John 1.9. But as far as God is concerned in seeing our standing in Christ, we are as righteous as Jesus is in his sight. Now that's a beautiful, undeserved privilege of grace. I can't even understand it anymore. But we just say hallelujah, amen, and let's go, okay? So verse 30, what shall we say then? Now watch this, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they did not pursue righteousness, were the Gentiles God's chosen people in the Old Testament. No, they weren't. It was the Jews. But notice this. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, they attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by what? There's the trigger. Faith is the difference in this situation. It's the difference in their relationship with God. Now watch this. Verse 31. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness. Why is that? Because the law is the written perfection of God. What makes the law complicated is our inability and failure to keep it. We cannot be righteous enough in and of ourselves. However, the Jews instead looked at this as a grocery list to check off as they go throughout life. And if they get to the end of it, maybe God will let me in. Well, guess what? That became Judaism. That didn't become the idea of being accepted before God because of the merits of another atoning for your sin. Everything that the sacrificial system was set up in the Old Testament, because we've all been reading Leviticus lately, right? We've No, okay. But anyway, that's what it's set up for. It points to the atonement for sin and the acceptance into God's presence. Well, that can only come by faith. You can't earn that. But notice the Jews are trying to earn it. So notice. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it how? By faith. Instead, they stumbled over Jesus Christ when he showed up. And that's true, didn't they? I mean, think about it. You've got to be in a pretty messed up place in your heart to look at everything that Jesus was doing amongst people at that time. It's not like he had some kind of private clinic that people came to and he treated them. He was out there healing people in public. He was telling people, don't tell everybody who I am. And they're like, forget that, we're yelling it, right? They couldn't wait to give glory to God because the healing was so miraculous, instantaneous. And by the way, notice that Jesus never asked for money to do it. Just the first free clinic was Jesus. Love it. Love the way you think. Where's that verse that women shouldn't talk in church? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so moving on here. I love you, Roxanne, I'm just playing. So now watch, chapter 10, verse 1. Notice Paul's 
outpouring here. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? They're real excited, but they're real excited in the wrong direction. You ever known somebody like that? It's like every three-year-old, right? Real excited in the wrong direction. Notice this. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Where does God's righteousness come from? Well, from God, yes. But by faith in Jesus, right? Where did they try to establish their own righteousness? How did Israel try to establish their own? By trying to keep the law. Notice that. They tried to do that by establishing their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They would rather keep the law than accept their Messiah. That's the idea. But watch this. I love verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. The point he's hammering home is faith, 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 faith. Right? Everybody with me? Okay, this is important because what we're going to see today, you're going to think that a lot of cats are... are, are playing with yarn if, if, if you don't have this basic understanding here, okay? So now looking down at chapter 10, verse 17. What an excellent verse. So faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Missions, personal evangelism. We need to be sharing this so that people can believe. How are people saved? They must hear the gospel in order to believe the gospel and be saved by the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is essentially this. Christ has done all the work for you in order to be accepted by God. And the only thing that we have done in this process is further made ourselves needy before God because all we can do is sin. He sets the righteous standard. Christ provides the means of acceptance. You cannot earn it. You cannot do anything, as we're going to see next week, regardless of what our Lutheran friends think. You cannot be baptized to be accepted by God. It has nothing to do with that. You are saved one way and one way only, and that is by faith alone, by itself, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, by himself. Not Jesus and you taught Sunday school for 12 years. Not Jesus and I did communion. Not Jesus and I went to confession. Not Jesus and I prayed the rosary. Not Jesus and I prayed for this person. Not Jesus and I joined a church. If it's Jesus and, it equals the lake of fire. That is important to know. Because if there's one smidgen that I am trying to draw into my salvation, I'm essentially saying that Christ was not a sufficient Savior. He couldn't get the job done. So let me find something around here that's going to complete this. What do we have that we could possibly add to the cross of Christ? See what I'm saying? There's a guy, uh, Tullian Chavidgen. Try spelling that, all right? But it's Billy Graham's grandson is who he is. I just met him a couple months ago. Zach was with me. Chuck was with me at this, this conference. He has a book. I love the title. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What a great title. That's exactly what it is. It's Jesus plus nothing else. We don't need anything else. You simply need Christ and him alone. Not just to be saved, but to live in intimacy with God. And this is Paul's whole thing. Salvation is by Christ alone, and the Jews missed it. That's the problem. It's not that God's word failed. It's that they're in unbelief. This is why we need to keep preaching. This is why we need to keep sharing the gospel. This is why we need to keep dropping gospel tracts. Whatever it is. Whatever it takes to get the gospel in front of people. So now let's move on. I'll end up preaching on that the rest of the time. We, we won't get to anything. Verse 18. But I say, now remember, Paul didn't have text messaging, so he's got to anticipate the questions of his audience, okay? But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Wasn't that the point? Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Isn't that what you got? Well, you got to hear the gospel to believe. But he's like, no, wait a second. You might say, uh, the Jews didn't hear. Now, hold on just a second. I've got 39 books here. That at the start of my Bible that says that the Jews did hear. Did they not? Yeah, they did. In fact, would you say that the Jews heard in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the parts of Acts that were written before this book of Romans was written, which was probably around 64 AD? Yeah, I would say that's a lot of hearing that's going on. So notice what he says here. 
But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? And notice what he says. Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, maybe they heard, but they just didn't know what was going on. Stop for a second. Think about what you know about the Gospels. Did the Pharisees know who Jesus is? Think about what you know about John chapter 3, right? John chapter 3 is pretty basic, just because we know John 3.16. But do you remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? And if you remember, he says, Teacher, we know. Stop. It's just you, Nicodemus. Who's this we? Who's the we? The Pharisees. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Because nobody could do the things that you do unless God's with them. Does it sound like that they knew? It sounds like they heard, and it sounds like they knew, and it sounds like that enough of it had unsettled Nicodemus to the point where he had to go and investigate it for himself. And so Jesus talks with him. They knew. So they're beyond excuse is the idea here. There's no excuse for their unbelief. Look what it says. Verse 19, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, now watch this, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. And look what he says after this here. Forgive me, i got to turn my page. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let's read a little bit more. Verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold to say, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, stop. What are these previous verses talking about? Anybody know? Gentiles. Isn't that what he just defended in the whole idea of the end of chapter 9? They weren't looking for me. And yet they've attained the righteousness of God. How did they attain it? They heard the gospel. They believed. They're now saved by faith. Just like anybody else is if they will just believe in response to the gospel. So what is, what is Paul saying here? He's getting ready to set it all up for what we're looking at in chapter 11. Because chapter 11 is actually when the sermon starts, okay? When my sermon starts. What is he saying here? He's saying salvation is going to be spread out to the pagans. That's the idea. See, when we read Gentile in the NASB, in, in most contexts, you have to use context to determine the meaning. But you need to think pagan, godless. God wasn't working with them before. They were... Far away, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, and they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The rejection of Israel has led to the salvation of the entire world. The gospel has gone out beyond them. And why does God make the gospel available to them? It may sound crazy, but here's God's plan. He wants Gentiles to get saved and experience the blessings by having intimacy with Him that Israel was supposed to have and manifest before the nations. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4. By the way, since Tom and Pete aren't here, Deuteronomy class is still going on. So everybody can come to that and we'll talk about it. But they were to demonstrate, be his megaphone to the nations. Well, because they have denied him, rejected the Messiah, kingdom is on the back burner, God sent his Messiah to the cross, and now the church has become a brand new thing. It's open. Gentiles are getting saved. Primarily importance to make Israel jealous. They're experiencing your blessings. They know your Messiah. They have intimacy with Yahweh. They didn't have to go to a temple. They didn't have to sacrifice a lamb. There is no more atonement for their sins because the perfect atonement of God's lamb that he provided has atoned perfectly. Man, we are a privileged people as the church. This place in history right now where we live, we are an incredibly blessed people. But notice what he says here. This is very interesting. Verse 24. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long. Now notice, pertaining to the nation. All the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know what obstinate means? What does obstinate mean? Stubborn. But what's interesting is this Greek word means to speak against. I'm reaching my hands out continually to a people that don't just disobey me, but they are constantly speaking against me. 
This is what their unbelief looks like. Does everybody see that Israel is in the boat that they're in because they have failed in the personal responsibility they have to respond to the gospel? Does everybody see this? Okay, their failure has given away to abundance for us. The gospel has been made available to us. Now, let's start the sermon. Chapter 11, verse 1. And we're going to cover this whole chapter. And it's snowing outside. You really don't want to go out there. Right? Okay, just making sure. I think I hear somebody leaving. <laughs> I'm out. All right. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? You answer this question. Has God rejected Israel? There are some people who believe in what is called replacement theology. How many people have heard of replacement theology? This is the idea. Since God is doing something, obviously, with the church, and that's where his blessings are coming through, what is happening is, is that God has taken Israel as a nation and kind of, eh, I'm not really working with you anymore because of all the bad and evil things that you've done. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the church, which we're also going to call spiritual Israel, and we're just going to heap all the blessings over on them. So now the church gets all of Israel's blessings. Stop. Were Israel's blessings earthly or heavenly? They're what? Well, both kind of. What, what is the covenant made with Abraham? I'll give to you a land. I'll give to you a seed. And through you, I'll bless the nations of the world, right? How come we're all not trying to buy real estate over in Israel right now? I mean, if we're the new spiritual Israel, should we not go over there? Plows are here, that's what it is. But everybody see how that works? How come we weren't over there in 1967 fighting? How come we weren't there at that time? Well, we're spiritual Israel. Well, we're not willing to take the persecution that Israel's gotten, so what's wrong with that? Probably because we're not Israel. God is not done with his people. And notice what it says after that. May it never be. That is a double negative in the Greek. It means, no, 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 no. If you have a Spanish translation, it says, no way, Jose. Right? Possibly. For, and here's the reason that he gives. Here's how you know they haven't, he hasn't rejected his chosen people. For I am an Israelite, Paul speaking of himself, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He, he can't be done with Israel totally. I'm a believer in Christ. I'm currently serving him. I'm currently living by faith, and I know that I'm accepted by faith. And I have God's righteousness because I'm in Christ Jesus. Paul gets it. He's not done with this people. Look what he says here. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, don't freak out. The word foreknew means to know beforehand or to know from old is the idea. Did God have a very vibrant relationship with Israel previously speaking? Does he now in an intimacy sense? No. Notice he hasn't done away with them. But right now, he is not actively working with them. Why? Because they denied the Messiah, attributed those works to the glory of Satan, and therefore God judged them by putting them on the back burner of history. They're not actively being worked with as the forerunners of God's manifestation of his glory. That's not happening. Who's asleep? Okay, stick with me. This is exciting. Okay? I don't want to just be a resounding gong, but I will pull that symbol out and smack it if I need to to get everybody awake. Here we go. Now notice what it says here. He doesn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know? Now that's interesting because anytime Paul says that, it is kind of smart aleck. It really is. It's got some sarcasm to it. Now he doesn't have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. There is not a spiritual gift of sarcasm. I've heard some of you say, I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. No, no. Most of the time it's sin, okay? But since Paul's doing it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can't conclude that, right? So notice here, have you not read? Do you not know? He's like, here's what he's saying. Think back to the scriptures. Think back to what God has already shown you in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Do you not know what the scriptures say? And notice it does, in the passage about Elijah, mark that out. You may conclude that there's a book of Elijah, but no, that's not what he's getting at. How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Does everybody remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Remember they have that contest, you dig a trench, I'll dig a trench, we'll see what God answers. He's kind of making fun of them, nothing ever happens, and then God rains down fire from the sky. Everybody remember that? You'll notice that whole incident, he's using that as an example, and he's applying it, he's not interpreting it, he's applying it to this. And look what happens. Verse 4, but what is the divine response? What has God got to say about this? 
to him. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I, Elijah, from your point of view, it looks like that these evil prophets who are demonically deceived have gone through and have killed everybody and everybody in Israel's turned away. Not so. There are still, how many does it say? 7,000 men who are in faith, who believe is the idea. They've been set aside. Because they've believed, they've qualified in a different realm. They are holy. They are set aside. It's not like these who have not believed and therefore fallen after these false prophets. Verse 5, in the same way then, like that, in other words, in comparison, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to, and notice the word gods is in italics. Everybody see that? It's not in there. It says the choice of grace is the idea. The choice of grace. Now, everybody freaks out about this because the word choice can also be translated as the word elect. Let me be very clear about this. And I encourage you to do the word study for yourself. If you if you were like, how do I do a word study? If you're in hermeneutics, raise your hand. Hermeneutics knows how to do a, a word study. Get with those people. Let's study the word elect and chosen together. Not one time in the Bible do you ever find that somebody has been elected to either go to heaven or hell when they die. Their justification is never a situation of election. However, what do you find? You always find that election has to do with someone or something or an entity, a corporate entity like a nation of Israel, who has been set aside and called to a specific task, purpose, vocation, or ministry of which they are charged with getting done. Let me give you an example real quick, just because this is controversial with some people. Is Jesus Christ the chosen one of God? Okay, so what you're saying is, is that before the foundation of the world, there was a whole bunch of people just kind of wandering around and nowhere or nothing, and God decided, you know what, I think this one will be the Savior right here. We'll consider him the chosen one, and he will die for the sins of the world. Is that how Jesus is the chosen one? No, he's not. But was Jesus chosen for a task, ministry, vocation, something to do, isn't it? He was commissioned with the task to perform and accomplish. How is he the chosen one of God? Actually, probably better translated, he's the choice one of God. He has been the specially commissioned one of God to fulfill something that God has for him to do, a responsibility to undertake. I guarantee you, you look through all of your usages of the idea of choose or elect or election, those types of things, that's what you find. Never do you find that somebody's been chosen to go to heaven when they die. It doesn't happen. So look here, verse 5. In the same way then, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant. There is always a group of Jewish people who are believing by faith. Now, how God has orchestrated history for that to happen, I do not know. He is way, way, way more smarter than I am. But notice what he says. At the present time, when Paul wrote this, is the idea, 64 AD, at the present time there's a remnant according to the gracious choice or to the choice of grace. Verse 6, but if it's by grace, it's no longer by works it's no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace in other words grace oil works water they can't mix grace and works cannot mix does everybody remember what it said the gentiles weren't looking for righteousness and they attained it right by how by faith but the law of righteousness the jews were trying to uphold how were they trying to get righteousness by what by works. Notice, it's got to be by the grace of God making salvation available to people. It's not about trying to work for it. The Jews are missing the boat by trying to think they can be good enough, structure their houses in such a way, muster up enough courage to do whatever needs to be done. Who knows, man? Purge themselves. That's legalism is what that is. That's trying to be accepted under some other means that you've conjured for yourself, not casting yourself upon the freely given pardon of Christ. So notice what it says here. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking. Is Israel seeking righteousness? Yeah, they were. But they're trying to seek it by doing it themselves. What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. Everybody freaks out. God chose only some people. No, those who were the choice ones. According to this entire context, what makes somebody a chosen or a choice one? The fact that they've believed. That's what it is. Isn't that the problem? Israel didn't believe. Is that the problem? Is that the problem? Who's lost? Okay. Want to make sure everybody's with me. All right. So notice this. Those who were chosen obtained it. 
Those who responded by grace through faith, and the rest were hardened. Why were they hardened? Unbelief. This right here points to Matthew 12, 24. The works that he does, he does by the power of Beelzebul. Everybody remember that? This is the rejection of the nation. Rejecting their Messiah. Look what he says, verse 8. Just as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say them. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now the idea here is they stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? Everybody remember that at the end of chapter 9? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that they stumbled over. He's the stumbling stone for the Jews. But notice, they didn't stumble over him so as to fall, and it seems what fall means here, this idea, uh, let's see here, to uh, descend, to be thrust down, to be dismembered is actually one usage of it, uh, or to prostrate oneself. In other words, they didn't stumble over Jesus and now God's done with them. Is that true? I mean, even though they were hardened and judged in that way by God, is God done with them? And notice what he says. Notice you can answer this. May it never be. It's the same no way Jose. No, it didn't happen. Look what he says. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Is that the same idea we saw in chapter 10, verse 19? It is. When the Jews were in unbelief, God let loose missionary endeavors so that the entire world could hear the gospel and by believing be saved. Why is that? Because by experiencing the blessings that He freely gives, the pardon of sin and the intimacy with the Almighty Father who created all things, we testify to them of the relationship they are missing out on that is rightfully theirs. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, don't fall asleep. Here we go. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, stop. Does everybody see the words there, there, there? Notice that God didn't cause them, or some people actually think that God predestined them to sin. That's not the idea. That would compromise God's character. You could never trust Him. But notice, they are personally responsible. Their transgression their rejection notice their failure their, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the gentiles now watch this how much more will their fulfillment be in other words when they or the word actually means their fullness when they come to accept jesus as their messiah is it going to be grand and glorious man i can't wait for that day when the jews finally go oh right that's man that hurt that's going to be a great day. It did. That's going to be a great day when we see the Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. When do we know that that happens? Well, we're going to see here in a minute. Paul gives us the exact time when the Jews are going to come to faith in Christ. Now watch this. He says, verse 13, But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, because God's plan was by salvation being made available to the world, it would incite jealousy to Israel. And by inciting jealousy with Israel, they would be so jealous that they would be moved to faith in their Messiah. Get this. So what's, Paul, what's that make Paul want to do? I want to work more. I want to disciple more. I want to evangelize more. Why? Because the more that I do what God has commissioned me to do, and the more people that get saved and are growing in their faith who are Gentiles, it is further testimony screaming at the Jewish people, believe in your Christ. That's the idea. He understands that he could all of a sudden have a massive army of witnesses instead of just him trying to share the gospel with one Jew. It's having everybody on fire for Christ, experiencing those blessings and preaching to them so that that jealousy would move them to faith. Notice, the whole idea is trying to penetrate the heart so that it would come to conviction and belief. Does everybody see that? Yes? Okay. We need to get up and do jumping jacks or anything? Okay. We don't have to be that church that stands up, sits down, but we can become it if we need to. All right. Verse 13. Sorry, 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life 
from the dead. In other words, when the Jews accept Jesus, it's going to be like resurrection just took place. They are going to come to faith in Christ, and it's like somebody rising from the dead is what's going to be amazing. Now watch this. This kind of messed some people up. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, does everybody see of dough is added? Okay, this is the idea that it's talking about, but don't let that mess you up because everybody see the word first piece? That word in there in the Greek is actually the word for first fruits. And that's important for you to know. Some of your translations will say first fruits, but it's probably better translated first fruits. If the first fruits is holy, the lump is also. In other words, if the remnant who believes at this present moment has been set apart, then those who are going to come to faith in Christ at a later date will also be holy in the same way. Does that make sense? So notice he's projecting this idea of the present to the future from where he's at. Now watch this. It says next, And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now this is going backwards. If the root is holy, the branches are too. Now some people have said, what is the root? What is the root? What is the root? Hold on one second. Let's look at this. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now stop. The only thing I want you to see is the idea that it mentioned root again. What is the rich root? Some of it is translated the root and the richness is the idea. It seems what Paul is getting at is Abraham is the father of faith. He is the root. He is the moment. Everybody remember Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. Everybody remember that one? Okay. And we're actually told in Galatians 3, 7 that we, the church, are, have Abraham as our father by faith. Does that mean that we're Israel? No, in fact, whenever Abraham believed God, there was no Israel, was there? No, it wasn't until he had offspring that you began to have Israel through Isaac and Jacob, who was later named. Ding, 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 you all completed Bible Jeopardy. That's great. So notice how that works. Now watch what's going on here. Verse 17, let's start at the beginning. If some of the branches, some of the branches, does it say all of the branches? No, so we get the understanding that there is a rich root of blessing here. It's probably the by faith through Abraham. Some have just said it's the blessing of God working in history. Regardless of what it is, we have this idea of a tree that has rich roots that are down in the ground. And it's coming up through here. And notice it says some of the branches, not all of the branches. Now watch this. Some of the branches were broken off. You ever broke a branch off a tree? We're all together. Here we go. And you being a wild olive. Now who is he talking to? Look at verse 13. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, right? If you being a wild olive, and you might want to write branch in there just to help you, a wild olive branch are grafted in among them. Did everybody that was a natural branch get broken off? No, why? Because not every branch was in unbelief. Everybody see that the branches are talking about the Jews. They're the natural branches. Why? Because that's who God chose in the Old Testament. That's who he's using to administer his blessing to the world. But notice, because of their unbelief, they're broken off and set aside, and now we're grafting in these Gentiles into this mode of faith. Look what it says here. He grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Verse 18, here's the warning, church. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now stop. That's what makes me fearful of replacement theology. Is when we disregard the Jews as having no place in God's future plan, we deny that they are His chosen people. Instead, we try to translate that whole idea onto the church. You actually have people who despise that idea. In fact, this is very interesting. Of all the good things that God used Martin Luther to do, there's one horrible thing he did in the flesh. And when he was later on in his life, he got very anti-Semitic in his judgments of things. And he actually wrote a tract called The Jews and Their Lies. And he had it mass published and distributed all over Germany. Stop. What do you think that may have been the seabed for hundreds of years later? Everybody see how crazy that is? And Luther was a Christian. But because he had a wrong view of the Jews... Because he wasn't, and here's what I think would happen. I don't think he was translating it in context. I think he had so much Catholic baggage hanging over his head that he couldn't get out from under that way of thinking all the way. And so he was bringing it into the Reformation. He wasn't separating himself from it and just reading what Scripture says. Has God done away with his chosen people? No. See, that right there clears that issue. But he actually blamed them for killing Christ. Who killed Christ? 
we did. All of us did. How did we do it? Sin. Everybody see that? We're all guilty of murder from the get-go. So this whole idea and thinking that it may have led the, laid the seedbed for the Nazi regime, scary stuff, man. Scary stuff, all because passages like this are misconstrued and misinterpreted. So notice, do not be arrogant towards the branches. In other words, church, don't be arrogant towards the Jews because you're experiencing those blessings right now. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root. In other words, you don't support faith. You don't support what God laid down through Abraham at the beginning. What is it? The root supports you. In other words, you're nobody special, church. If God would have gotten involved, you'd still be lost. Everybody see that? So notice verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their what? Notice it's not because God predestined them to be huge sinners who denied their Messiah. When they heard the gospel, they did not believe. That's the problem here. So notice, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your... It's as simple as can be. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Do you think that God's interactions in judgment and relationship with the Jews serves as a testimony of how He could work with other people as well? And notice... Did he, did he, does he love Israel? Good grief, he loves Israel unbelievably. And his heart aches for Israel. But does that mean that he will not discipline them? Everybody see that? God's plan is going to be accomplished. Nothing's going to stop that. But that doesn't mean, well, we're just going to let this one go. Well, there doesn't need to be any justice here. Well, you know, discipline's not really the right, no. He will paddle them just as easily as anything. Why? Because he sets the standard. It's the right thing for him to do. He cannot let willful sin go. He can't. So notice, moving on here. He says here, Do not be conceited but fear, verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Verse 22, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. Why? Because He had to judge them for their unbelief. But to you, because blessings have come to us, God's kindness. If, 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 there's the contingency. You continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. All of us? No. Those who are arrogant about their position of blessing. Notice what He says. Uh, let's see here. Verse 23. And they also, now watch this, if they do not continue in their unbelief. Does everybody see that unbelief is the problem for the Jew? Okay, notice. If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Now that's what it's talking about. What will their fullness be? Right? Everybody remember that? Look back at what we saw. Verse 12. What will their fulfillment be? How much more will be their fulfillment of riches and joy? That's the idea. So it says here, verse 24. For if you were cut off from what was by nature a wild olive tree, speaking of Gentiles, the coming of the church, and were grafted common, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? How much more do they not fit in the plan of God as He has set them apart? Now I know this is running long. Stick with me. We're good. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, this thing that was previously not seen, but is now being revealed to you. Brethren, saved or unsaved? Here it is, guys so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Isn't the problem personal arrogance? Right? This is what leads to that replacement theology idea. God's not done with the Jews, but look what it says here. And this is so important that you get so that you... This right here defines how you understand the book of Revelation right here. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, there is a partial hardness that lies upon the Jews. Why? Because they killed their promised Messiah. And they are culpable for their actions. By killing him, God is able to take a horrible situation and bring great grace out of it in making the gospel available to the Gentile world. Thus we have the institution of the church. But when the time of the church is fulfilled, God will then remove his partial hardening off of Israel and will bring them back to the forefront of all history for the seven years of tribulation. Everybody see that? Now we're going to see how this happens. Look at verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. 
Just as it is written. Now, you guys are getting ready to interpret prophecy. Are you excited? We'll see how well you do. I guarantee you score better than all the commentators I read on this. All right? The deliverer will come from Zion. Who's the deliverer? Jesus. Ding, ding, ding. I love it. Will come from Zion. Now, this is a little tricky. He'll come from where? Well, Zion. Yeah, that's the answer. Where does Zion? Israel could be one translation possible, more particularly Jerusalem. It's used like that in the Old Testament. Context determines meaning. But also, where else is Zion? Heaven. Okay? Now, where's Jesus right now? In heaven. At the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and me, isn't he? So notice that. Jesus will come from heaven. Okay? Now, watch this second line here. He will remove godliness from Jacob. Does anybody have a different translation besides the NASB? Sorry. Man, I almost caused the end of the world. (laughs) Wow, yes. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Sorry. Does anybody have a different translation besides the New American Standard? What do you have back there, Pam? Okay, what's it say? Uh Uh-oh, the NIV got it right. He will turn. This Greek word is apostrepho. If you've been in the uh, um, Final Destiny class that we did over the summer, and we were talking about repentance and the words used for it, it actually means we'll turn back. We'll turn away is the idea. If you look at this idea and you sit there and think, okay, he will remove ungodliness, or yeah, ungodliness from Jacob, you almost think about the idea of destruction. It could lead you in that path, but that word remove actually means turn away is the idea. He will turn it aside from them he will remove them from that now let me let me show you this real quick mitch i got to give you a couple of verses number one isaiah 59 20 if you wouldn't mind type that in real quick and let's look up on the screen and see what it says okay if you want to write it out to the side of this you can see it isaiah 5 9 verse 20 isaiah 59 20 here we go a redeemer will come to zion and to those who turn from transgression in jacob declares the lord Now notice, because this is the Hebrew translation, will come to Zion, when they pulled it from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we have it here translated, will come from Zion. Now understand this, this is not a translation, or I'm sorry, this is not an interpretation of this Old Testament verse. This Old Testament verse is being applied to the argument that Paul is giving. You want to learn more about that? Hermeneutics, Monday, 10 o'clock, 6 o'clock. Here we go. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn. That's the idea. Turn from their transgressions is the idea. Does that mean that God's going to come in and just start turning people away from evil? Is that what it's talking about? No. Notice that there is a personal responsibility entailed. Those people who have turned. Now go back here to Romans. Take a look at it. Notice it says here, This is my covenant with them. I don't have time to get into this, but here's what I'm going to, I'm going to give you. Jeremiah, if you want to write this in, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. It's what's known as the New Covenant in Scripture. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. And you need to read it carefully and in context over and over again because this passage has been applied to the church. It has nothing to do with the church at all. It's very important that you read it. Jeremiah 31, this is the New Covenant. 31 through 33. Notice, this will be my covenant, my contract with them when I take away their sins. When Israel finally experiences forgiveness. That's how they're saved. It's not any different. When is the time period going to happen? When Jesus comes from heaven. When does Jesus come from heaven? The end, no, not the end of the millennium. The end of the seven-year tribulation. Remember? The sky rolls up like a scroll. And everybody sees the Son of God on the throne and they're freaking out and they're trying to get rocks to fall on them and kill them because they think that death will hide them from the eyes of God? That's how pagans think. They're going to be crying out for suicide so that God can't get to them. Does that stop God? Oh man. But notice you get a glimpse into their mental reaction to seeing the Son of God face to face and being without pardon. Everybody see that? When Jesus returns, that's when He will save Israel. Israel will look upon Him and go, that is our Messiah. And those who believe will be saved. In other words, the remnant will be much, much bigger. So now let's finish this up. Verse 28. 
From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Why? Because they reject it. But from the standpoint of choice or election or choosing, notice that God is in the italics there, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, because God has had this long cultivated relationship with them all the way back to Genesis 12, they're beloved because of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the idea. Notice what it says. For the gifts and the calling of God and this is not a Kentucky pronunciation, okay, are irrevocable. That's actually how you prim and proper keep your spoon and fork on the right side, say it, okay? It's not irrevocable, it's irrevocable. I learned that in Etiquette Magazine. No, I didn't. Okay, so notice here. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can't exempt them. God's already made this promise to the Jews long, long ago. So he says here, verse 30, For just as you, Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews. So these, the Jews, also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they, the Jews, also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all, all, A-L-L, all in disobedience. Why? So that he may show mercy to... God's mercy is for every single person. Why? Because every single person is disobedient. Every single person is sinful and needs a Savior. And he's saying it's no different if you're Jew or Gentile. If God had a long-standing promise relationship with you, or if you've been brought into the fold as a result of their rejection of that message, it doesn't matter. Every single person is disobedient. This is, the, this is the whole point he's making at the beginning of Romans, the end of 1 and beginning of 2. Every single person is guilty. Every single person is disobeyed, and therefore God is having mercy on every single person by providing a complete, all-encompassing Savior is the idea. This is God's plan. He's not going to force the Jews to believe. So because they've rejected, He is going to preach all the more through you and me to them about the blessings and the privileges they are missing out on so that they would become so jealous of the intimacy that we have with God it would provoke them to respond to the gospel and accept their promised Messiah. Does everybody see that? No? Sometimes I think that's a mercy answer. Yeah! So here's the culmination of it. Here's the culmination. Verse 32. I'm sorry, 33. And man, I hope this provokes your heart by seeing this glorious truth. Watch this, what God's doing in history. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who can know the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Anybody? No one. So you write that in because it's a question. Nobody can be God's counselor. Nobody knows the extents of his mind and his plan. Notice, who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Anybody? Anybody give to God first to help him out? No. He is given all things for us. Notice that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me ask you this. Do you know why you're saved? Because I'm a sinner. No, that's, that's why you needed salvation. But do you realize that you are saved not as an end unto itself? There are too many Christians that are saved and stuck. Well, I'm in. I got my ticket. And that's kind of as far as it goes. So all you're saying is I just got to believe Jesus, I won't go to hell? It's so much more than that. God wants to use every single person that makes up the church today as heralds and testifiers to a lost world around them. That's God's plan. When Jesus left, He gave two different things for us to do. Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in all the world. Matthew 28, Go and make disciples. That's it. Share Christ and disciple them. That's it. That's it. And that's all. 
And for some reason, the church in America seems to be throwing darts at the outer ring consistently and sometimes missing the entire board. The bullseye cannot get any bigger. Do we know the gospel? Do we know lost people? We just answered this whole problem, didn't we? What is keeping people from being saved? Get this, guys. It's not their sin. Jesus already died for their sin. It's their unbelief. It's the same thing that is keeping the Jews from believing in Christ. Here's what I think the problem is. It talked about that the saving of the Gentiles was meant to bring the Jews to jealousy. Do you think there is anything about American Christianity today that is making a Jew jealous? You know why? Because it's largely devoid of holiness. It is the entertaining of sin rather than the confession of sin. Because it has much more to do about how big of buildings can we build, how many people did we have in the door, how much money came through the plate. Well, yeah, such and such told me their sins. Boy, sure I'm glad I'm not like them. That's pharisaical. The church today in America represents more of pharisaical unbelief than it does true, humble Christianity that desires to cultivate a relationship with the Almighty Creator and all of it has already been given to us in spades. There's nothing left for us to do in order to cultivate that idea. It's already all been given. Let me pick on something real quick. Emily, don't hurt me. Everybody know the song. More love, more power, more of you in my life. Can Jesus give you more love than what He already has given you? No? Okay, so that song's unbiblical. Do you like that song, Emily? Not anymore? Okay. <laughs> How about more power? Is all the power already in Jesus? Is it already there to, for us to take full advantage of? Why don't we? It almost seems silly. Man, I'm having trouble paying this water bill. Don't you have a savings account that has about $12 million in it? Yeah. Hmm. Hope this doesn't go delinquent. And that's the problem is, we by and large live in delinquent Christianity. Rather than saying it is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything for me. He is all. Beginning, middle, end, everything. Doesn't matter what it is. He is the supreme focus. How dare He, in bringing us in relationship with Himself and the Father, give us nothing in order to continue cultivating that fellowship like He has. Why? Because those are the things he prayed before he was betrayed. Father, my desire is that they would all be one as you and I are one. That they would be unified. That they would experience the love like you had with me before the foundation of the world. That we would experience fellowship. 1 John 1, yes. Even John says that my joy would be made complete. Why? Because you are in harmonious fellowship, deep intimacy with the Father. Well, how do I get there? God's Word has given us everything. 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 That wasn't enough. Guess what else He did? Oh, you believed? Here's the Holy Spirit as a deposit of the great things to come. He'll give you discernment. He'll help teach you the Word of God. He will guide you in all truth. Promises. Guess what else He's given? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Church is not a building, guys. Church is you and I. We are the body of Christ. It is not this building. This building gets taken away in a snowstorm. I expect everybody to be here. Next week, 9 o'clock. Why? This is the body. This is the church. So we've been given miraculous privileges in order to preach this resounding, true message to every single person because God desires to have mercy on every single person. That's why He sent His Son to die for every single person. Guess who needs to hear the gospel? Every single person. And our word preaches a lot louder if we are pursuing personal holiness and walking with Him.
there are sometimes I look at my life and I thought, man, a Jew wouldn't want anything about my relationship with Jesus. Because it's not proclaiming all that I have in him. Therefore, that's a me problem. That's a 1 John 1, 9 problem. Get right with him now in my fellowship. Does that make sense? I'm going to preach forever. Let's just pray so I'll be quiet. <laughs> Father, thank you for abundant privilege. Thank you, God, for miraculous mercy. Thank you, God, for how we even see the outplaying of all history is going to be a testimony of the truthfulness of your word. And it very much sets the parameters of the fact of unbelief is so detrimental but by believing, those blessings are freely given. There's a lot of personal responsibility there. Every single person needs to hear the gospel. Every single person is someone for whom Christ has died. Father, help us either in our discouragement or our fear or our unbelief that we would instead rely upon you to open those doors so that we could open our mouths because faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.